Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Christ Through Their Eyes, which was taught to help us celebrate Advent in 2021. Advent is a time to reflect upon the coming of Christ, which was revealed progressively to many people in the scripture. In this series, we consider several of these perspectives on Christ and his Advent. We hope this helps you understand uh, and, and apply that, God's Word in go your life and today. We're going to turn to God's Word this morning. We're going to be uh, finishing on Sundays our series that we've been looking at, Christ Through Their Eyes, where we've been looking at just a number of different uh, passages regarding Christ in the Scripture and kind of seeing from the perspective of some of the people things that were revealed about Jesus. We're going to conclude this morning with Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And this is kind of what the angels and the shepherds uh, reveal to us regarding who Jesus is. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture, Luke 2. Uh, this is actually the one that we used to read with our kids when they were young every Christmas morning. We would wake up and read Luke 2 together. Um, so from Luke chapter 2, I'll be reading from the NIV. And I encourage you now, hear the word of God. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. May God bless his word. Uh, one of the things that happened over the last couple of years uh, during COVID is there have been a number of TV shows that have kind of come out and people really started talking about them and they became, you know, kind of a big deal. One of them was a documentary known as The Last Dance. It was uh, about Michael Jordan and the final season with the Chicago Bulls when they won their sixth championship. And uh, I had, you know, watched Jordan do all of that and enjoyed watching the documentary, and it was a reminder of how great he was as a player, how dominant he was uh, as a player in the NBA, I think probably the most dominant player who's ever played in the NBA. Uh, but another thing that came across in it was what Michael Jordan was not. He was not humble. He was driven. He was hard on himself. He was hard on others. Uh, he was great. He drug the Bulls to those six championships. He had no patience for anybody who didn't want to work as hard as he did. He was great, and he knew it. And that really came across. And in a certain sense, I'm not even saying that to drag Michael Jordan down, because the fact is, most people who are great in this world are not humble. They're pretty proud. They, they know their stature, and they walk uh, according to that with pretty much full of pride and arrogance. Now, we've been seeing some perspectives on Jesus. We saw in Revelation 1, his deity unveiled, uh, looking forward to what we will see in heaven. Him as the great God. We've seen that he is the seed uh, of hope who's come to us that was promised to Eve and to Abraham and to David. Uh, we saw last week the prophecy through Ezekiel on how he is God's presence with us and is building God's temple in our midst. He's all of these things. Today we want to conclude here at his actual birth in this text in Luke chapter 2 and see how he is the humble king. We're going to see his glory far exceeds anything Michael Jordan ever thought about having. But in fact, this glorious one is not proud, but rather humble. So let's dig into the text. Notice at the beginning we are told, uh, as we're hearing, that the king has come. And the angel comes and he brings good news of great joy. Notice in verses 10 and 11, the angel shows up and 
If you were here when we were looking through Daniel, we saw virtually every time an angel appeared to Daniel, what was Daniel's response? It was fear. And in fact, if you look in the New Testament, virtually every time angels show up or anywhere in the Old Testament, there is a common response of fear. And so we're not surprised that the angel shows up to these shepherds and the first thing out of their mouths is, do not be afraid. We, we realize we might be scary to you. We realize that this might prompt fear for you, but I don't want you to be afraid and here's why. I am bringing you good news of great joy. And the word good news there uh, is actually that I'm gospeling you. I'm giving you the gospel. I'm proclaiming to you the good news that God has promised in the gospel. And so the proper response to what I'm about to tell you is not fear. It is joy. But it's not even just joy. It is great joy. And I, I should say that... Uh, you know, we see this actually throughout the Christmas story. I was reading yesterday, I've been uh, this past week rereading in the Greek New Testament all of the Christmas things. And I was noticing that when uh, the wise men came from the east, it uses a phrase and it says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. He just keeps piling up how much joy there was in their hearts. It is a dominant note in the Christmas story, that rather than there being fear, rather than there being sadness or grief, there is to be joy. In fact, it's joy, joy, joy. It's exceeding joy. It's exceedingly great joy. And the reason for this, we are told, is it's good news of great joy for all the people because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. So he's telling them that you have this. After all of these lonely years of exile, the, uh, after all this time of domination by sin, the Savior has come. And so the angel commands him and says, I want you to rejoice. Now, what the angel tells them is that this Savior that has come to them is in fact the king. And Luke lets us know in the way he weaves the story together, we're, we're given several things that let us know the stature of this one who has come. First, we can see that he's coming in glory and power because the king, his birth is being attested by a mighty angel. Notice in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And remember, again, every time human beings run into angels where the angel is kind of unveiling who they are, humans are in awe because angels are far mightier than we are. And so the fact is, every day there are many, many births. But this birth was different because this birth was attended by angels. And I'm going to go ahead and guess none of your births were, <laughs> nor were mine. My mom likes to say all kinds of nice things about me, but not even my mama would say that when I was born, the, the room was filled with angels and they were singing my praise. Did not happen. And if my mama doesn't say that about me, you can take it to the bank, right? <laughs> so, so this is something unusual, that there is this angel that's coming and announcing the birth. And I want you to think for a moment, as we think through the Christmas story, how active angels were, because this is not typical, okay? We don't have angels come and appear to us every day. But yet in the Christmas story, remember that Zechariah, kicking it off in, in Luke chapter 1, the father of John the Baptist, he's going in to do his ministry in the temple. He's an old man. He's done this many, many times. But suddenly he gets in there and an angel, Gabriel, appears to Zechariah. And then we're told a little bit later, Gabriel, the angel, goes and he appears to a young virgin named Mary. He comes to her. And then we're told that when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, Joseph says, this can only mean one thing, right? Mary has been unfaithful to me. We're not even married yet, and she's already been found unfaithful, and he's going to put her away. But we're told that an angel came to Joseph in a dream. And so now here we see the angel appears to the shepherds, and in a minute we're going to see that there's in fact an entire choir of 
uh, uh, of angels that come. So angels are active throughout this story because God is setting it apart and saying this is not just like any other birth. And in fact, if we notice in verse 13, as I said, there's an entire angelic choir. We're told suddenly a great company of the heavenly host. That word actually means kind of the heavenly army. And it's used to refer to angels. And it says, they appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, uh, you know, the, the thing that we're familiar with, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. So picture this again. It's not just one angel. There's an entire choir of angels that are singing about this birth. In fact, the choir is the capstone of all the angelic announcements. From the time it had kicked off when God sent Gabriel, you got a picture. I, I had almost talked about what this all appeared like to the angels. Think of what it's like when God says, Gabriel, come here. I want you to go to Zechariah because we're kicking this whole thing off. For the angels, this has got to be astounding. And he goes to Zechariah, and he goes to Mary, and there's an angel appearing to Joseph in a dream. And they're doing all this. And the capstone of it all is that an entire choir comes out, and they sing, hailing the birth of Jesus. This is no ordinary birth. But there's more than just that to tell us it's not an ordinary birth. And that, we are told in verse 9, the rest of it, which is his birth is announced with the glory of the Lord. Notice the glory of the Lord shone around them. So it's the angel himself is not enough. Now we have what was referred to as the Shekinah glory, the brightness of God's glory. It shines all around the shepherds. I mean, these guys are just sitting in the field, watching their sheep, trying to stay awake, and suddenly there's an angel and there's light everywhere because the glory of God is shining upon them. So again, think about this and you can understand why these guys are terrified. I remember fondly the birth of every one of my children. Amazing moments, but once again, despite how excited we were, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory did not break through in the birthing room. It was just another birth of a child, very special to me, but if you had been there, it would have seemed like the birth of your children, just like everything else that had gone on. But here, God's glory breaks through. And we're told specifically then why God's doing all this. In verse 11, we're told that the one who is being born is Christ the Lord, the King. So notice in verse 11, we're told, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, the reason he brings up that in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, this is because he's letting him know this is the promised Davidic king. We're told, actually, that Joseph and Mary don't normally live here. They're from somewhere else, but they've gone back because there's been a census so they're going home to take care of the census. She has the baby at this time. They're, in fact, later going to flee to Egypt and then go back and settle in Nazareth. But he's born in Bethlehem because this is where the promised Davidic king will come from. And in saying this, we need to understand this harkens back to what Simeon was talking to us about. The Davidic king, the seed of David, is also the seed of Eve. He's the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob. He's the one that is going to come through David, the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. And so when the shepherds are hearing that the city of David, a king is being born, everybody knew what that meant. When the wise men again came to Herod uh, and they said, hey, we're, we're looking for the one who's born king of the Jews because we've seen his star. We've been tracking this for a while. We know that he's coming. And Herod asked the wife, well, where's that going to happen? And all the scribes tell him, well, that's in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's where the king is going to be born. So when these shepherds hear this, they know who is coming. But this child is actually none other than God himself. We sang this a couple of different times this morning. Uh, based on the name Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew actually quotes it for us and says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. And that's literally, Emmanuel is actually Hebrew words that are put together, and it means El is God, and Imanu is with us. That's what the, the name literally means, God with us. And so God is telling us, not only are the promises being fulfilled, I'm not doing them from afar. As great as it is that the angels have come, the real great news is not that angels have come near, but that I have come near. I have come to work salvation for you. I am coming to save you. Now, the announcement that the king has come, I want to remind us, it could be fearful to these people because the fact is the shepherds know that they're rebellious. The shepherds are actually oftentimes rejected by the religious leaders of the time. We, we kind of, you know, make it a little bit, oh, the shepherds and they're out there. You know, David was a shepherd and the Lord is our shepherd. Shepherds were despised at this time. People looked down upon them. And so they're not even accepted by the religious authorities. They would certainly fear that if we're not even accepted by other humans, God's going to reject us. So God drawing near could have been fearful, but yet the angel is telling him, oh no, don't be afraid because God is coming near not to judge, but to save. God is coming near knowing you are rebellious, knowing you are broken, but he is coming near to work salvation for us. The king is none other than God himself coming to bring salvation from sin, from death, and from hell. Now, the amazing thing is, and this is the paradox I want us to get this morning, all of that Christians confess regarding who Jesus is. We recognize and we say, oh, he is God with us. Uh, this, is, this is the glory of Christ. And all of that is true. But the amazing thing is this king comes as the humble king, the humble king. So notice the great paradox, the humility of this God king. And again, I want us to step back for a second. And some of the things we read by in the Christmas story, every aspect speaks to us not only of joy, not only of the angels being there, but also of humility. First off, consider the fact that Mary herself, the mother, was of humble origins and she prophesied that Jesus came for the humble. So Mary, uh, when she's told by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, she sings a song that we call the Magnificat because that's the Latin word for when she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. It magnifies the Lord. So we name the whole song. But listen to what the song says. Beginning in Luke 1, 46, Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices, notice joy there, in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now I want you to see, when God sends his son, he did not pick the most well-known woman. He did not pick the richest woman, the most powerful woman. He picked an obscure young girl. That's who he picked. If there had been Instagram at the time, she would not have been an influencer. She would have had like one follower, and that was because Joseph knew he had to follow her. <laughs> Nobody knew who she was. She wasn't chosen because we would have chosen her. She was chosen because God was looking for her. And what God was looking for was very different than what we would have looked for. Mary was humble. And here's the amazing thing. We got all these silly people today that are Instagram influencers. And they got all of these people that follow them. You know how many of them are going to be remembered five or ten years from now? None of them. All that stuff's ephemeral. They go on. Every day I look, I, I get a, the digest of the New York Times, and I see the obituaries they pick out. And almost every day there's four or five people who are being picked out by the New York Times as having been so important in their life. And almost every day, you know what they've got in common? I never heard of that person. I have no idea who they are. 
because our fame is fleeting. But this young girl from backwater Nazareth that nobody knows anything about, notice what Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. How many of you in here know who Mary is? Humble girl from nowhere. But when God picks her, we all know who she is. And let me say just for a second, too, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Protestant and the son of the Reformation and all that. Sometimes Protestants give Mary short shrift because we're afraid, you know, that the church may have, you know, let me tell you, God carefully chose Mary. She is a model for you and I. And we need to understand, we sit there and we think, you know, she says, from now on, all generations are going to call me blessed. It's not a good thing when you're a young girl and says, hey, listen, I know you're a virgin, but I'm going to make you conceive before you're married. Not a good thing, okay? And our culture, nobody think anything about it. We'd have a big party. Everybody'd say, okay, no big deal. Their culture, they would say, pick up the stones, okay? Joseph almost doesn't marry. This is, it's not great news for Mary at first, let me tell you. It's humbling, difficult news. And so when Mary says, May, let it be according to your word. In fact, I point out to you, Zechariah, the priest who ministered in the temple regularly, got silence for months because of his unbelief at the word of God. Mary is blessed by God for believing the same angel. Okay? She's an example to us. But notice, not only is Mary humble, in her song, she tells us that Jesus is coming for the humble. Notice in verses 51 to 53, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thought. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So this king has not only come to, to marry this young, humble girl, he is coming for the humble and not the proud. Notice it tells us there, he scatters those who are proud. God puts away the proud. We will see a little bit later. Peter will bring this up. But he lifts up the humble. We're told in verse 53, he fills the hungry with good things, but sends the rich away empty. Now, this is not that God doesn't like people who have money. There, there is a statement here that God is saying, those who are humble, who are overlooked by the world, who are cast aside as meaning nothing, those who are left hungry because the world has nothing to offer them, I am coming for them. And those who define themselves by being something in the eyes of the world, who count the treasures of this world as what they build their life around, God says you'll be sent away empty. That is the nature of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So right from the beginning, we're told that there's something about humility. But not only that, notice the birth announcement that God gives through the angel, through the choir, is not to kings or to rich, powerful men, but to shepherds. Notice again, verse 8, you know, there are shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. And the angel comes. And again, I remind you, these people were despised by society. They were the lowest of the low. No, nobody thought anything of them because, you know, if you hang around with sheep in the field, what do you start smelling like? You do. You start smelling like sheep. People in palaces don't want that around them. And so you have to understand, I, I sometimes wonder if it's not part of the humor of God, that the greatest concert ever given, the Advent Choir, burst through the clouds. And it's not Caesar. It's not a whole group of princes. It's not a great army. It's a few smelly shepherds on a hillside. That's who's getting the concert that they've been preparing for from all eternity. 
But see, God says those who the world counts as something, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those who are humble and receive me. And so the king comes to exalt the poor and overlooked. And I'm not going to go into it this morning, but I want to remind you. See, the shepherds that we're reading about this morning, when they hear, they receive God's word with humble faith and joy. But when Herod learns that the king has been born, what does he do? Just meditate on that for a little while. They view the coming as salvation. He views it as a threat. Because we have one or two responses to the king. So, the, and then notice, the king, when he comes, he's not only, you know, through Mary and told that it's going to be about humility. He not only comes to these humble shepherds, but he's actually born in humble circumstances. In verse 12, this is the sign to you. Because even for the shepherds, they're probably expecting something awesome, something amazing. But the sign is, you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now see, again, what we expect, what Israel expected, what they said all along, is when the Messiah comes, he will burst through the clouds, riding a horse, he's gonna, everybody's going to see, and God says, now here's what you're going to find. You're going to find a baby. The opposite. This is probably a good lesson for you and I. Pretty much think of what you think God might do flip it upside down, and you've probably got a good idea what he's actually going to do, okay? So it's a baby coming, a weak, helpless child is God coming to say. Secondly, notice he's placed in a manger. You're not going to find him in a palace. You're not going to find him seated on a throne. You're going to find him laid on some hay in a manger. So The king doesn't just come for the humble, he is humble. In the very way he comes, he is humble. And this is the note that tells us what all of Jesus' ministry is going to look like. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the Apostle Paul sums up the life of Christ this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus possessed all the riches of heaven. They were all his, and they're all his by right, and he gives all of that up to become a poor, humble human. And first off, just for the Son of God to take our flesh to himself is an act of ultimate humility. But note, he not only takes our flesh to himself, he doesn't become Caesar. He doesn't become the President of the United States. He becomes a poor child in a poor, inconsequential family. This is him pouring himself out. Though he was rich, he became poor. But notice why he did this. He did this so that he who had forfeited any right to the riches of heaven might be, uh, we who had forfeited any right to the riches of heaven might be brought in and brought in as full heirs. He who was rich became poor so that we who had given up all of our rights to any kind of riches might be brought in and given the full inheritance of heaven. Friends, this is humility. This is grace. Another way to look at it is Jesus became human, a humble human, for our good. C.S. Lewis put it this way, And he's actually echoing uh, Athanasius, an early church father. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. See, Jesus is God by nature. 
but he takes our humanity to himself, embracing our weakness, embracing our frailty, and forsaking his rights as the eternal son of God. He doesn't lose his deity, but at every moment he forsakes, he goes by that right to say, no, I have become a man so that men might become the sons of God. So he forsakes his divine prerogatives, his divine rights, so that we who had forsaken God and were his enemies by our nature and by our choice might become the sons and daughters of God through him. This is humility. This is grace. And then, if we consider, he did this throughout his entire life. An early church father uh, known as Gregory of Nazianzus. He was uh, a father in the East, is one of the great theologians of, of writing about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Uh, he says this regarding the paradox of the humble king. He began his ministry by being hungry, yet he is the bread of life. Jesus ended his earthly ministry by being thirsty, yet he is the living water. Jesus was weary, yet he is our rest. Jesus paid tribute, yet he is our king. Jesus was accused of having a demon, yet he cast out demons. Jesus wept, yet he wipes away our tears. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed the world. Jesus was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. Jesus died, yet by his death, he destroyed the power of death. Do you hear what Gregory's saying? This paradox that we see there in the announcement of the angels isn't a paradox of humility for a moment. It's for the entire time that Christ walks the earth. This paradox characterizes every moment of his ministry. He's not humble for a few moments or a day or a week, but in fact for his entire life. There's a song I love that I uh, listen to a lot during Holy Week as we approach Good Friday and all. It's called Lower Still. And it talks about summing up the entire life of Christ. That when he comes and he's born to Mary, it says that, you know, he's becoming lower. But the Lord says, but I must go lower still. And then it recounts his ministry and his life. And he says, and I must go lower still. And then you come to Good Friday where he goes to the cross and he bears our sins. And he says, I must go lower still all the way into the grave, into the depths. For you and for me. That's what Gregory's bringing up to us. This humility, this emptying of himself and going lower still is not for just a moment, but for his life. He poured himself out, embracing our lack, our want, our need, so that we might be given the full riches of salvation, all the inheritance of God's covenant promises, all the riches of glory and heaven. This is humility. This is grace. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean for you and for me? Two things I want to encourage us to do this morning. The first one is embrace the humble king for joy. Notice the note that the angels come in with. I'm bringing you good news of great joy. Today we lit the candle uh, that represents joy, and it is joy because Jesus has come. And a lot of our Christmas songs, you know, the Christmas carols we hear, and that, well, I would have said, pre-COVID, I would have said people were walking through the mall listening to, now they may have on while they're shopping on Amazon, but they're about joy, right? We hear this over and over again. That's because in a world of sorrow and brokenness, and grief, Jesus has come, and he has come that we might have true, deep, everlasting joy. See, we read in Isaiah that Jesus was a man who was familiar with sorrows, 
Why did he humble himself? Why did the king of joy become familiar with sorrows? So that you and I, who had spent our whole life deserving nothing but sorrow, might have joy. This king has come to give us joy. One of the things that grieves me the most is when people think about Christianity today, we think of it as how it restricts us. And it's like, come to Jesus and you'll have a miserable life, but it'll be better after you die. Well, sometimes following Jesus does bring persecution, but even in the midst of that, I want you to know it is for joy. My life did not have less joy after I came to Christ. It had more. Following after Christ is following the path of joy. So if you are here today, or you are listening, and you have never responded to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I urge you, do not arrogantly refuse to humble yourself and come. Come and be surprised by joy. I, a couple of years ago, as I was reading uh, on most of what C.S. Lewis wrote, I spent a whole year doing it. His biography uh, that he wrote was an autobiography. It was called Surprised by Joy. And it's so funny because Lewis was a determined atheist. He wanted nothing to do with God. Then he started sensing that God was calling him. He, became a, he came to realize there must be a God, but he didn't want to consider Jesus. He didn't want to think about it. And then when he finally came to the place where J.R.R. Tolkien and another friend had Explain the gospel to him. And he bent down, he bent the knee, he said, there was no more despondent convert in all of England that night. I thought my life was over. I thought my life had just come to nothing but grief because here I am now and I'm becoming a Christian. That's how Lewis felt about it. But the name of the book is Surprised by Joy. Because what he found was, that wasn't the end of joy, it was the beginning of joy. Everything he had been looking for and searching for and running down all these other paths that he kept saying, they left me cold. They left me with nothing. I couldn't buy Now I found it. Friends, come to Jesus. Be surprised by joy. And if I want to I urge you, if you are a believer... We, of all people, ought to be joyful. We live in an angry age. People are angry about everything. They're angry if you're not angry enough. They're angry if you are angry enough. They're just angry. We ought to be in the midst of that and say, I just got joy, joy, joy. Seriously. Because it doesn't matter what goes on in this world. We know who wins. We know where we are going. We know that the best we have ever had, tasted, experienced, dreamed of, God even tells us it hasn't even entered into your mind what I've got for you. In the midst of that, we should not be angry people because it doesn't matter what they're saying, what they're doing, whatever's going to happen in 2022. Okay, look, I, you know, I get the disappointments. I, I, had, I had seriously thought COVID was behind us. I had joy, joy, joy in June because I thought, well, we're done with all this mess. Well, here we are, right? Okay, well, guess what? It doesn't matter. There is unending joy. One of the things that helped the early church was when Christians went to their martyrdom, it drove the Romans nuts because they were used to people begging and pleading and crying for their life and trying to bargain. And the Christians were like, light me up. It doesn't make any difference. All you're doing is putting me into joy. All you're actually doing is giving me more reward on the other side. Have at it. It drove the Romans nuts. Okay? Friends, we need to be people of joy. We have good news of great joy. Second thing is how we receive that as believers. We receive overflowing joy by embracing humility. One of the reasons that I think we struggle with this is because we don't want to walk in humility. Our age does not encourage this. Okay, I loved Michael Jordan as a basketball player. But humility is not what's going to be on his epitaph. Okay? But Jesus 
is the humble king. And his followers are called to walk in humility. So actually, I didn't know, and Bobby didn't know I was going to bring this up, but Bobby began our meeting today quoting out of Philippians chapter 2. And it's a great text that we often go to. You know, but Jesus is in very nature God. And he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He kept going lower still. But notice, Paul's not just making an abstract theological point. His point is given to us in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Let this mind, as the King James would say, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He's telling the Philippians, you all are sometimes struggling and you're bickering and you're fighting. And what that tells me is you're not thinking about the way Jesus is. This passage is one of the most amazing pieces of theology in the New Testament. It tells us of the incarnation. It tells us of the full deity and full humanity of Jesus Christ and how embracing our humanity, he did remain God. But notice that the whole point of it is a call for you and I to walk in humility. We never had the heights that Jesus had, and we're never going to go to the depths he did because on your worst day, you will not be bearing the sin of the world, nor will I. And on your worst day, you will never be able to say and be correct, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I may pray that, but we're wrong. We haven't been forsaken. He was so that we might not be. And so Paul says, if your highs were never as high as his, and you're not called to go as low, whatever humbling you're doing is less than Jesus did for you. Have we done this? Jesus has set the pattern for us. And I want you to think for a moment. When Simeon taught a few weeks ago, he used a phrase of biblical theology where we kind of see things throughout the scripture. It's a very important way for us to look at the word of God. I want you to see this isn't something that's just in one passage. Consider from the very beginning how we see this pattern that the cross will precede the crown. Friends, if you go back and you look in the book of Psalms, the entire structure of the book of Psalms, it starts with lament and it ends with praise. Even the individual laments, they begin with lament, Lord, where are you? And they end with praise, you have come and you have saved me. We see that Israel has to go down into Egypt for 400 years before they are brought out and brought into the promised land. We see that King David, when he's told he's going to be the king, where does he go first? Out into the wilderness. And he spends time in the wilderness before he is brought in to be the king. Throughout scripture, cross precedes crown, suffering precedes glory, humility precedes being exalted. It's not just a phrase Jesus occasionally whipped out. He's saying, don't you understand? It's the entire structure of the word of God. This is the way of king, the kingdom. Friends, it's the way of joy. There is no joy apart from humility. We will not experience it apart from humility. So to walk in pride is to walk against the grain of the universe. And it is to invite grief. But walking with Jesus in the way of humility brings full blessing and full joy now and forevermore. That's what it is. See, it's, it's the nature. I could have even, if you really want to see how deeply ingrained this is, notice we believe in the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who are always giving, who are always pointing to another. And so for you and I to come in and say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a taker and I'm going to be prideful and I'm going to say, look at me, is to go against the fundamental reality of the universe, which is God himself. It's not the very nature of God. And so it's not going to be the nature of reality. So I want to encourage us in this angry world that wants to do all this stuff, be countercultural. 
and receive joy in doing so. Just say, I'm humble. It doesn't matter what you say. Actually, what's true about me is worse than what you said. And Jesus forgives me. And Jesus loves me. And it doesn't matter. Now, friends, that's a challenge for you and I. But here's the thing. We do that because you remember, actually, and I'm going to, when we're doing our communion prayers, I'm going to be referencing this. You remember Jesus in Hebrews 12. We're told to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And we're told again, you set your eyes. This is the way life works. You can endure the cross, you can scorn its shame, because there is joy, real joy, everlasting joy that is set before you in the way of Christ. So we are going to come to the Lord's table, and this table is a table of humility and riches and joy. It's a table of humility because here at the table... We remind ourselves that Christ, who is fully God, became human for us and for our salvation. He humbled himself, took our flesh, and even died in our place. And so we come and we humble ourselves at this table by confessing our sins. Because to take this bread and take this cup in a moment is to confess, I need a savior. I cannot make it on my own. I had forsaken God, but in Christ I am accepted. But it's also a table of riches and joy. Because Christ humbled himself, we get to feast here with Jesus. And we get to eat and drink the grace of God and to receive the joy of God freshly for ourselves. So I want to encourage you, if you are a believer, you are welcome at the table. Come confessing your sin and receiving the very joy of God. If you're not a believer, I want to urge you to become a believer. I want to urge you with everything in me, enter into this path of joy. Please see me afterwards. But in the meantime, let it go. Because make no mistake, eating the bread and drinking the cup is saying... I believe the gospel. I believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I believe he is the path of joy now and forevermore. So hear the word of invitation from God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you can go ahead and get the bread ready. Lord Jesus, you are the eternal son of God. The second person of the Holy Trinity. The king of the universe. Yet, you took our flesh to yourself. You, the eternal Son of God, became a man so that we might become sons and daughters of God. 
Lord, we take this bread, your body, humbly confessing our sin and unworthiness and crying out for your mercy and forgiveness. And we do this in faith, trusting that your body was broken for us so that we might be healed and given eternal life. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, though you were perfect and sinless, you suffered and bled for us, enduring the cross, scorning its shame, so that our many sins might be forgiven, cleansed, and put away forever. So Lord, we take this cup of the new covenant, giving thanks for your blood, which has brought us forgiveness and secured our place as the covenant people of God, now and forevermore. Brothers and sisters, take and drink the cup of joy. Let's stand together as I pray uh, to our Lord. I encourage you to join in and receive the blessing of God. Holy Spirit, through your word we have seen our Lord Jesus is the humble king. And Lord, this astounds us. The king of glory came in humility to serve, to seek, and to save the lost. Yet, we so often live in pride, though our weakness, frailty, and sin is evident to all. So, Holy Spirit of the living God, we cry out, work humility in us. May we be quick to listen and slow to speak. May we be quick to forgive and slow to judge. May we be quick to serve and slow to demand of others. As Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, may we humbly embrace the daily crosses in our path that we might receive the fullness of joy that is only found in walking in the way of the humble King. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and love as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, go forth filled with the blessing of God and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.